that scene was something out of a, a VR apocalypse scenario. Welcome to the XR for Business podcast with your host, Alan Smithson. Today's guest is Jeremy Dalton. Jeremy leads PwC's virtual and augmented reality team, helping clients across all sectors understand, quantify, and implement the benefits of virtual and augmented reality technology. As part of his mission to educate, connect, and inspire, he is also a member of the World Economic Forum Virtual and Augmented Reality Global Future Council and sits on the advisory board of Immerse UK, a cross-sector network for businesses, research, and educational organizations in the immersive technology industry. Jeremy is also an advisor for the VRAR Association, and he's also a mentor for our XR Ignite program. To learn more about PwC's VR and AR endeavors, you can visit pwc.co.uk slash VR. Welcome to the show, Jeremy. Hi, Alan. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, it's such an honor and a pleasure to, to have you on the show. Uh, we've been communicating for many years now, and uh, we even have a, a kind of a joint research folder that we've been adding to over the years. So it's really great to, to have you on the show. Definitely. I'm looking forward to getting stuck in. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. So I just want to tell a quick story about what two months ago you you came to Toronto with your PwC team and uh, and ran a partners conference, and you had an enormous number of simultaneous virtual reality experiences. So do you want to maybe just explain what that was and how how that came to be? Yeah, sure. So this was a particularly exciting project for us where very, very quickly, in summary, we put 200 people into virtual reality at the same time, and they all had this simultaneous experience in the same room. And I was able to collect that data in real time and understand exactly where in that experience they were and what decisions they were making in that world. So it was it was fantastic. It went off without a hitch, <laughs> thankfully, given the number of potential technical issues that could have gone wrong. I was uh, I was very happy. It all went very smoothly. It was quite the endeavor. I remember you said, hey, we're doing this thing tomorrow morning. I'm in Toronto. I, I canceled my meetings in the morning. I came over there. I, I went into the hotel. I was at the Royal York in Toronto. And I went upstairs, walked into this room, and it was dead silent. And there's 200 people, 200 plus people. There's more than 200 people for sure. And you could hear a pin drop on a carpet. And it was the strangest thing because everybody was in VR and everybody's looking in different directions. It was this crazy thing. And you you had this branching narrative. Maybe talk to what that branching narrative was. Right after the experience, you were able to show the information. Walk us through how that came to be. Yeah, sure. And uh, I, I like your comment about uh, being able to keep everyone uh, quiet. That was actually mentioned as well by um, by some of the organizers of the conference, that they were amazed by uh, uh, this this pin drop silence uh, in the room, because obviously it's very rare. You, you've usually got people messing around on their mobile phones. You've got them talking to each other, uh, going to get a glass of water, leaving the room, coming into the room. So uh, I think it's a testament to the power of virtual reality to create such a captive and focused audience. It was incredible. You know, I think this is one of the things that people underestimate about virtual reality, because once you're in there, you've got the headphones on and you're in a comfortable, safe place where you can get right into it. 
people lose themselves. They're no longer in a, in a conference room in a hotel in Toronto. They are in, in your case, a boardroom in an office talking about cybersecurity. You've literally transported hundreds of people into one joint experience. And I don't think there's been any other technology in the world that hijacks 100% of our entire focus. Exactly. And I think that point, we call it immersion. Immersion is one of the greatest strengths. And in fact, the main strength of virtual reality. But I feel like the word immersion is very broad and doesn't quite pinpoint the many subsections of immersion that you get as advantages from virtual reality. And one of them is that ability to to captivate an audience and to put them in a distractionless environment. And uh, that obviously has um, incredible uses when it comes to uh, to training, to learning, education, um, and and a number of other business and consumer applications. So let's walk through the experience itself that you guys created, because I think cybersecurity is a huge issue. And I mean, I don't know how detailed you want to get, but this was a cybersecurity attack and you were educating the, the partners on what to do. Exactly, exactly. So we effectively built this from the ground up over a three-month period leading up to that event in Toronto. And the, the desire was to create an immersive experience that put people in the middle of a cyber security attack on their company. So we wanted to be able to, uh, to take clients to this world where their company is under attack and to help them understand what it's like to be in such a scenario without the danger or the cost or inconvenience of being in such a scenario itself. So that's why we use virtual reality here to make that happen. The base content was 360 video, but a branch narrative of 360 video. So if you can imagine um, in this world, you were asked to make a number of decisions. One of the first, um, or choices rather, I'll call them. One of the first choices is whether you want to be the CEO, the CFO, or the CISO, the Chief Information Security Officer, in this um, experience. And depending on um, which character you choose to embody, you get given a different path or experience in this cybersecurity attack. So from the CEO's perspective, you are you're looking at um, the strategic agenda of this attack and what it entails um, for the company at a high level, things like its reputation, for example. And eventually you are pulled up in front of the press to answer, yeah, that was cool. Yeah, to answer some very taxing questions um, about the um, about the cybersecurity attack. If you choose to be the CFO, you then have to make a decision as to whether you recommend making payment, uh, Bitcoin payment, on the ransomware attack that's taken place. And uh, finally, if you choose to be the CISO. Uh, you get a more technical view of the attack. You're trying to understand where has it come from, who effectively, uh, where was ground zero in terms of the attack, who was responsible, what channel uh, was responsible, and you're trying to plug that up as soon as possible. And the choice you make there is whether you want to prioritize the external public-facing website or the internal customer relationship management or CRM system. And the great thing is, 
depending on what decision you make, you get given a different experience. And we can see all of that data in real time based on what you're doing. I literally had a tablet in front of me in that uh, massive hotel conference room. uh, And I was able to see exactly what was going on, what every individual person was doing in that world. And that's something that really struck me as very beneficial to facilitators of training, facilitators of conferences. This to me is probably one of the first times a company has ever done something like this. And that's why I think it bears a lot of discussion around this because you took 200 executives and you put them in the exact same experience, but with different choices. Now, one of the things that I saw afterwards is as soon as they took off the the headsets, it was interesting how you you managed to make it so that they all ended within, I think, 40 seconds of each other or something. Yeah, that's right. So that required not only um, some technical uh, know-how in terms of using this platform to kick everyone off at exactly the same time. So I'd literally be there everyone's ready, no issues, no more hands raised. So I would click this button on the tablet and all 200 plus headsets would light up and start the experience. That was the first uh, thing we had to do. Uh, And the second thing, probably more importantly, we had to build the narrative or design the narrative of that experience in such a way that the sum of the lengths of all the branch narratives added up to approximately the same amount. So you can imagine that was a bit tedious, but as you said, we managed it. It takes a lot of planning, but yes, we did manage it within about 30 or 40 seconds. I recorded a video of this. You know, I walked into the room and it's funny because I walked in, people are already in VR. I took some film around everybody. And then at the end, you see all these people taking it off and they're kind of like, they're just, who else is there? And then they start looking at each other and like with these kind of big eyes going, wow, that was amazing. And the one thing that I thought was amazing beyond the reactions from the people was the fact that you had the metrics up on the screen. So not only were you able to see it on the tablet, but you then projected that information onto the screen. So as you take off your headset, you can look up and see what percentage of people chose to be a CFO, CEO, or CISO, and then what percentage of people chose different branching narratives from there. People are in VR. They don't know what other people are doing. They pull it off and they can see a consensus. And I'm, I'm pretty sure we figured this out remotely as well. You could do this with employees all around the world and run them through training scenarios. I mean, it's obviously not as easy as doing it in one room, but I think there's definitely potential here. And I think that's probably where you're going uh, in the future with this. Absolutely. I mean, we could consider this um, phase one effectively. And there are lots of other options open to us in terms of how we advance this idea or concept. And yes, it could be uh, advancing it in a, in a geographical context, so being able to spread it out to different parts of the world. Um, and in fact, we've, we've already begun on that. We now have over 500 different headsets um, in PwC globally. Um, and a number of the headsets that you saw in Toronto um, are now in places like Chicago, New York, London, Singapore, Melbourne, Dubai, Lagos, and Nigeria even. So uh, wow. we're definitely keen to spread it all around the world and spread the, the education around virtual reality because I think that's particularly important. Um, and education, not only in terms of the theoretical understanding of knowing that VR 
is advantageous in a training context because of X, Y, and Z, but actually feeling it. So knowing it from firsthand experience. And that's incredibly important for a technology like virtual reality because it is experiential. It can never be fully understood um, in purely a theoretical context, which is why we're so keen to to spread the headsets globally, spread the experience globally, and therefore spread the knowledge and understanding globally. You you mentioned 500 headsets uh, across PwC around the world. And one of the things that I noticed, and I, I took some photos of the aftermath that was this experience. So you had 200 and some odd people in VR. They finished the experience. They go out for coffee break. Your team collects all these VR headsets and headphones and brought them into a staging room. And there was literally a pile four feet high by five feet wide of VR headsets. And I mean, that's clearly not the way we're going to do this in the future. How are you guys managing uh, your device management? Is it is it like something like a device, like a cell phone or something? Or how are you managing device management within PwC? And what would you recommend to other companies who are looking to deploy these these headsets because that that's a big challenge for people is device management absolutely and uh, yeah you're right that uh, that scene was something out of a, a vr apocalypse scenario it was scary <laughs> <laughs> but un- unfortunately that is the way it has to be um, at least currently there's no real way of getting around it if you're trying to to manage headsets on such a large scale and particularly trying to um, to handle them remotely. You've got to have some sort of mobile device management or MDM solution in place to be able to, uh, to manage, control the software on the headsets, manage the settings on them, uh, install, uninstall content, uh, all of this sort of stuff. It's, it's very difficult to, to centralize that physically and very onerous. So if you imagine 300 headsets globally, if we needed to do updates on those headsets, or we needed to install content or delete content or whatever it is, perform some sort of action, the very lo-fi way of doing it is to call the person up on the phone and say, right, step-by-step instructions, this is what you need to do and send them the files and get them to plug the headset in or however else they're going to move the files across. And it would be an absolute nightmare to do that on scale, at scale. Um, So instead, what we've got is we've got um, this mobile device management software installed on every single one of those headsets, which has gone around the world. And whenever anyone has requested an update um, or the installation of some content, All I have to do is ask them to read me the asset tag on the side of the headset. I will then go into my MDM control panel on my web browser here in in London. Um, I'll enter the asset number in. I'll see it. Uh, They have to connect it to Wi-Fi. Um, That's that's one of the things they have to do. But once it's connected to the internet, I'll see it pop up as online I will then send it instructions remotely via this web panel. So, for example, we have a little uh, macro, so to speak, around installing certain bits of content or wiping the device um, or uh, changing the Bluetooth name, all of those little things. So I will send as many instructions as I need to to get the action to be performed. It will get performed remotely via, uh, via Wi-Fi on their side. And uh, depending on the size of the file, if we're installing something, it should take... Know, anywhere from a few minutes to half an hour, maybe, to get that content installed. 
and uh, away they go. There's no need for them to do anything beyond reading that asset number and um, and connecting it to Wi-Fi. We just we do the rest remotely via this um, web-based control panel. That's incredible. Now, this uh, this control panel is this something that uh, you're making available to other companies? So this is not our piece of software. Um, so this is a piece of software um, by a company called Forty Two Gears. And they have a platform called SureMDM. Um, but that's only one option that um, we're looking at at the moment. There are many other options. Um, VMware is looking into, um, into MDM solutions for, uh, for virtual reality headsets. Um, and then you've also got um, Oculus with their own um, MDM solution as well. So there's quite a few um, different bits and pieces out there. So let's uh, let's talk quickly, and I don't want to talk too much about brands and stuff like that, but you chose not to uh, work with the Oculus uh, Go headsets, but instead you were working with another brand. That was mainly because of this MDM uh, mobile device management software solution, correct? So there were a few considerations that went into um, that decision. Um, so in the end, it came up to the, uh, for us, the Oculus Go versus the Pico G2 Pro. And we like the fact that um, the, the Pico headset didn't require the use of a controller, which made it far easier to do these demonstrations at scale. Um, so if you imagine 200 headsets in that room and having to connect 200 controllers Oh, that would be insane. Going, it, How would you even figure that out? <laughs> You'd have to tie them. So I've seen it before where they tie the remote to the headset. Yeah. But yeah. Man, the, the interference of having 200 Bluetooth devices. Oh, my God. Exactly. And that was actually a, a consideration in deciding whether we were going to Bluetooth the headsets, the headphones to the headsets or not. In the end, given what you just said, that went through our minds as well. We don't want to risk 200 Bluetooth connections all in the same location, connecting to um, individual headsets and getting that 100% right. So we simply went for the lo-fi solution in that case and uh, plugged a wire in between the headphone and, and each headset. And well, it's a good that thing that Pico. Quick. It's a good thing that Pico didn't take the uh, the Apple approach and get rid of their headset jack. <laughs> I know, right? But um, regardless of, um, of of vendors, there are there are advantages and disadvantages of every single vendor. And uh, the interesting thing is just understanding what headset works for you, depending on the exact solution, um, scale, uh, company, and uh, and situation basically that you're trying to deploy to. If you were to give five key things that you evaluate a headset on, you just mentioned a couple, so let's list them out. Okay, so one of them, pretty obviously, is specification. So firstly, specification from a power perspective. In terms of the processing power of the headset, is it good enough to run the type of content that we want to? Um, second of all, the type of lenses, the resolution of the screen, um, ultimately, the visual fidelity, the field of view, all of that I would consider under visual fidelity of, uh, of the experience, because obviously that has a, a big effect when you're, uh, when you're running virtual reality experiences. Then I would go also to cost, because obviously that's a, a major consideration, especially if you're doing it at scale. How much is each headset going to cost? Um, maybe at, at a bulk level, if you're, if you're buying um, uh, lots of them at once. Um, then I would consider the user experience points. Now, 
there are quite a few of these. The, con the, the need to have a controller connected was one of them that we considered. The need to register an account um, to use the headset is another one that we considered. Um, the ability to... Uh, to run an MDM solution is now an extremely important consideration at scale, so that's definitely a consideration. And one of the other th the other considerations we had, which may or may not be relevant, depending on what your focus is, is the 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 level of B two B focus versus B two C focus uh, of the headset manufacturer. So for us as a company, our main concern is is B two B. Um, so we're very keen to engage with uh, manufacturers of headsets that concentrate on the B2B market. So specifications, visual fidelity, cost and user experience. Is there anything else? Other considerations would come under supporting tools and software. So um, some headsets might support um, a type of kiosk mode as standard, and that's quite useful depending on your context sometimes. Um, I would consider privacy issues, particularly if you're going to have um, uh, confidential content or content that you need to have such a policy in place for compliance reasons. Actually, that's really important. Recently, I just read an article that uh, three of the major VR collaboration platforms got hacked. So yeah. it kind of exposes the fact that while these solutions are, are ready for use, they're maybe not ready for enterprise scale yet. And uh, I think that these are some considerations that we all need to factor into what we use and what we build. Absolutely. And that goes back to uh, our cybersecurity concerns and one of the reasons we created this experience in the first place. It's all circular. Exactly. <laughs> so let's dive into some, some numbers here. What were you guys measuring as the success uh, key performance indicators of this experience? How did you measure success? So interestingly, for this particular event in Toronto, um, a measure of success would be having a vast majority of users that have provided feedback that believe it was a positive educational experience versus an indifferent or negative one. The real KPI will come in a few months time when as we start to run this experience with clients, we get an understanding of their level of interest and engagement with the platform and whether that has added value to them in terms of understanding what it's like to be in such a cybersecurity scenario. And ultimately, uh, one of PwC's um, services is in cybersecurity and providing uh, various services around um, that issue to companies. So we'll see if that helps as well to, to augment the pipeline in terms of selling these services. So let me ask if you, if you can share, what was the feedback? You, you probably have some, some data around positive versus negative. Was there any negative feedback? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, there, there was, and inevitably there always will be. There will always be negative feedback uh, for any type of initiative or venture, particularly with some an emerging technology like virtual reality. That is, uh, such a technology will always come under fire when there are alternatives that uh, consist of the status quo. So, for example, um, you'll always have some people saying, "Why couldn't we have just watched it as a video?" For example, or you will get some people who are saying, 
the the room was was too hot or too cold. Now that may not be related to the VR experience particularly, but if you think of it as a whole from the outside, that does affect how a user feels about about going through that experience. So even though it's an external factor is what I'm saying, it does affect the ultimate outcome. So to give you some stats on it, it, it was very positive. It was 95% positive. Whoa. Exactly. 95% positive. And the other 5% said it was too hot and too cold in the room. <laughs> <laughs> I'm drawing out some from this batch of experiences. And I'm also drawing out some from a previous run that we did with actually 2,800 people. So we, we ran a VR experience previously. It was about a year ago, a year and a, go, a, year and a half ago now. This was with 2,800, not at the same time though. So this was only with about 100 uh, maybe 150 at a time max. So uh, we took it to its limits by going to 200 this time with our own uh, internet infrastructure to support that. But previously, we ran it with 2,800 people and got much uh, greater feedback. So I'm sort of feeding that in as well. Um, and to, and to, to create a framework, if anyone's thinking about gathering feedback from a VR um, experience, the type of feedback you're going to receive can be bucketed into the content of the experience. So in other words, uh, was the content effective? Was it impactful? Was it relevant? Uh, the next bucket is facilitation. So you've got someone who's obviously leading in terms of that session. They're telling you how to put on the headset, what to be aware of, what to click, what to do, um, what to touch, what to look at, and so on. Um, instructions ultimately. And if those instructions are poor, uh, the entire experience can be damaged as a result. And then you have external factors. You have things like the temperature of the room. And believe it or not, even more interesting than the temperature of the room, and this is a real piece of feedback, the floors were too squeaky. Ah. So if you can imagine 100 people in a room going through a virtual reality headset, just as you said, Alan, the room in Toronto was pin drop quiet. If, if you have facilitators and organizers and a, the AV team walking around the room, dealing with whatever they're trying to deal with during the session, if they are making a relatively loud noise on the floor or some sort of distracting noise, then that is taking you away from the immersive and impactful experience that you've created in, in this virtual reality world. So that ultimately wow. leads to a negatively impacted experience. So even something as small as that, so it's something to be aware of. Those three buckets are, are quite important. I think we figured out the title, Mass VR and Squeaky Floors. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, it's good. That's a, It's really interesting because the one thing that was so striking was that silence in the room, the squeaky floor thing is definitely an issue and people breaking people's presence is, is an issue. But I think that can be overcome with maybe noise canceling headphones or something like that. Potentially, yeah. But, but you know what, the, the biggest, sorry, Alan, I'll just mention one more thing before we move on. It's also, you, you talked about taking people away from the world through maybe walking around or, uh, or talking to each other, whatever it is. Usually those noises are not deliberate. So you have people that are trying to be quiet. They're trying to creep across the room because they need to, they need to get to the other side. But um, I have seen a few people who I would describe as not not mischievous or uh, or deliberately negative anyway, but you can see that they 
they're doing they're doing something that is deliberate and could be conceived as as uh, or, or would be considered distracting so for example I, we all know virtual reality to a lot of people is still a novelty so when you see your friends or your colleagues in virtual reality enveloped in this completely different world it's it messes with your head a bit because you've you've probably never had this experience before where you are together physically but one of you is in another world and because of that novelty factor you get people who get very excitable about it. They they want to get a picture beside them sticking their tongue out. Yes, they want to get a picture beside it. But even worse than that, you get some people who start waving their hands in front of them and saying hi to the person and trying to get a reaction out of them. Um, we definitely have to move on from that sort of culture. And, and we will eventually, but it's it's just that beginning stage. I got to drop a story in here. We were we were doing a demo for groups of people and we were doing one in a, in a private club in Toronto and there's a pool table there. And this guy says, look, I'm going to go and do this VR thing. I really want to try it, but make sure my friends don't come near me. I was like, okay, no problem. <laughs> he's in the experience. He's doing his thing and he hands me his phone and says, take a photo of me. I was like, oh, okay. So I back up. And the second I back up to take a photo of him, his friend comes over with the pool cue and just hits him right in the nards. And that was the end of that guy's VR. He will probably never go in VR again. And so I think we need to yeah. be really cognizant, uh, one, to not do that to people, but also not to break people's immersion. It really is jarring. Exactly. So let's get into some numbers. Can you discuss the costs associated with this? Ranges? I can give you ranges, yes. Um, but I'll start by saying that to anyone thinking about implementing virtual reality and deploying it in, in their organization, cost is a factor, but it is not something you should be too afraid of because you can have VR projects uh, that you can vary the scope of VR projects and uh, and the um, and the terms of those projects in such a way that they can go from you know tens of thousands of dollars to hundreds of thousands of dollars. Now, this particular experience to uh, to to go through the ideation on it, to build it, to set it up, prepare, procure the headsets, and actually deploy it over in Toronto, so abroad for us, from our perspective, um, that was in the low hundreds of thousands of dollars. Now, bear in mind, that is also including the procurement of, this was, I'll tell you exactly how many we ordered, it was close to 300 um, headsets in the end, because we were going to use them elsewhere as well. So um, that's the sort of range we're looking at for such a project but again that is that is also including the software development on it the 360 videography building the platform um dealing with even things like the network infrastructure and procuring that as well so um i think we did uh did pretty well personally uh, from what i've seen out there you guys managed to do this on a real budget even if you said 500,000 for 300 headsets plus the software to deliver it plus the, the filming. I mean, there's people out there charging that much just for 360 video development. So it's pretty impressive what you guys were able to do. And that's why I am so honored to have you as a mentor with XR Ignite because you bring such a practical, pragmatic approach to this technology. Oh, the honor is all mine. Thank you so much. Awesome. So let's talk about the return on that investment. Your PwC invests 
400,000 or 300,000 or whatever it is, somewhere in around there. And you've got this, these VR headsets, 200 partners that have tried it. What uh, has progressed from there uh, that will create a return? So for example, the partners that were there, how many of those partners now have requested VR in their divisions? So there are, there are five to 10 off the top of my head that are leading cybersecurity uh, services around the, around the globe for PwC. And uh, they have requested the, uh, the use of these headsets in their territories to assist with the selling of those services. And um, as I mentioned earlier, these start in the US and they go all across the globe from the UK um, to Central and Eastern Europe, uh, to India, to East Asia, Singapore, Australia. So we're really glad to, to see such a, a widespread uh, adoption of these headsets. And I don't think that would have been possible uh, if they hadn't experienced it firsthand. So, I mean, I'm thinking one of the uh, one of the partners in particular said they, after experiencing it, they immediately messaged me and said, Jeremy, we need to start deploying this to clients in one of our regions in Asia immediately. Let's get on the phone. And I was on the phone with them the week after, and uh, and now they have a number of headsets that they're uh, they're using over there. Yeah, I noticed that uh, Asia actually. They, I don't know if it's a culture or because they, they bypassed us with PCs and went straight to mobile, but the, the China-Asia market for virtual reality is voracious. They love everything to do with it, and they spend an awful lot on education and training, uh, more so than we do here. And this tool is by far and away the most powerful training tool we've ever created as mankind, so I can see why there's an allure there. And then have you deployed it now in, in Asia? Yeah, yeah. It is running in multiple territories in Asia now. Incredible. Which is great. So what's next on the roadmap? You've done the cybersecurity thing. What would the next uh, experience be that you guys are going to create? So in context of thinking about the future roadmap for this particular product and even going a little bit outside it, let's let's talk about the wider remit of, of training. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing for us is to see what platforms and what types of content match different business scenarios to add real value. So by that, I mean, uh, in my opinion, virtual reality is really good for soft skills training and for hands-on training. And when I say hands-on, I mean uh, any form of activity that requires you to be present in a certain location because you have to use certain tools or machinery, devices, infrastructure, whatever it is, needing to be in that location to perform those actions, that type of scenario is is very powerful to use virtual reality to train for. So we're looking at those two buckets and we're thinking, okay, so you obviously have 360 content, and, and I know 360 content is potentially controversial to a lot of people, but I'll just, I will exclaim my, stan- my stance on this right now and say that 360 content is like Schrodinger's cat. It is both virtual reality and not virtual reality at the same time. 
it depends on the context. So 360 content that is being uh, experienced in a virtual reality headset or some form of virtual reality device is a virtual reality experience. However, if you take that same virtual reality content and you display it uh, on a 14-inch 2D laptop screen where you're using the mouse to click and look around the environment, that is no longer virtual reality, despite being exactly the same content. So that's my stance on 360 video with regards to virtual reality. Now, on the other side, we have a different type of content. We have computer-generated content. Now, this offers you different advantages or disadvantages compared to 360 content. One of the advantages of computer-generated content is its ability to be quite customizable. Um, so if I wanted to take this experience and I wanted to switch up the type of conversations you're having, if I wanted to change the type of characters you're speaking to, um, that type of customization yet could be simulated using 360 video, but very much more complicated, much more uh, time consuming in terms of trying to build out every possible scenario. And at the end of the day, you'll never be able to build out every possible scenario without going back and and re-videoing in that exact same context. So we're keen to start exploring computer-generated content where it, where it makes sense from the point of view of perhaps soft skills training. Uh, when it comes to hands-on training, uh, computer-generated tends to be very strong because you're obviously looking for much greater levels of dynamism of interactive activities. It's no longer about just making decisions um, at a high level. It's about actually performing uh, minutiae of actions, which uh, computer-generated content is very good for. So in summary, we're exploring different types of content for training in virtual reality. We are exploring different types of devices. We're particularly keen to start seeing how much of our uh, six degrees of freedom tethered virtual reality content can be ported to standalone headsets. So in other words, taking it from something like an HTC Vive Pro or, a, or an Oculus Rift uh, to a Oculus Quest or a Pico Neo 2. So in a few months time, we'll be reviewing our six DOF strategy, um, just as we did with our three DOF strategy for, uh, for this event. And I'm quite excited to uh, to assess it based on a lot of the criteria we spoke about before and see where we get to. Well, I, I just want to unpack uh, for the people listening who may not know what 6DOF and 3DOF are. 3DOF is three degrees of freedom, meaning you can look left, right, up, down, but you can't move in the space. And six degrees of freedom, meaning you can look up, down, left, right, but you can also walk forward, you can crouch down, you can jump up. So you have that six degrees of freedom. Yeah, and I'll also add to that. That's a good point. I keep uh, <laughs> I keep forgetting that not everyone might know what that means. But also to explain that further, uh, we're also talking about moving from three DOF controllers to six DOF controllers. So again, uh, talking about what Alan just said from a controller perspective, with some three DOF controllers, you're able to point them around. It's like a glorified laser pointer, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But with six DOF controllers, you're actually able to move them in physical space and see them moving in the exact same way in virtual reality. So now imagine where you've got a six DOF headset and six DOF controllers that gives you 
complete freedom of movement and being able to look around. And that's the type of headset that we think is very powerful for corporate training scenarios. And we want to explore what devices and content really works well and in an optimized fashion on those types of headsets. So that's what we'll be exploring over the next few months. Incredible. Well, uh, Jeremy, I want to ask you, what is one problem in the world that you want to see solved using virtual and augmented reality or XR? Ooh, that is a difficult question. I'm going to say, I'm going to pick something outside of business and say that when it comes to, when it comes to healthcare and helping people manage traumas, helping people manage uh, fears, uh, helping them manage conditions like dementia, um, helping them get out of the house even if they uh, have accessibility challenges. Uh, I think this broad remit of using VR for good um, in a personal context, I think that will have great, um, great positive effects for humanity. Uh, and I think we're only starting to see that come out now in the world. So there's a lot of a lot of exciting things to come. And I think VR um, and AR can do a lot of good in the world. I'm looking forward to seeing that happening. Well, that is a great way to end this podcast. Jeremy Dalton from PwC Global. I want to say thank you so much for being a guest. If you want to learn more about uh, the great work that Jeremy and his team are doing, you can visit pwc.co.uk forward slash VR. And uh, how can people get in touch with you, Jeremy? Uh, probably best via, well, I'll give you the options. You've got LinkedIn. You can get me on LinkedIn at jeremydalton.info. You put that in your web browser, or you can catch me on Twitter at Jeremy C. Dalton. Um, so looking forward to uh, to chatting. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jeremy, and have a wonderful day. Being an influencer Thank you so on much. LinkedIn in the XR field Thank you, Alan. Uh, you really has opened up an opportunity for us to not only understand what corporations are looking for in virtual augmented mixed reality and artificial intelligence, but also from the aspect of the startups, studios, developers, and enthusiasts out there and what they need. So what we decided to do after getting hundreds and hundreds of messages is to open up XR Ignite to the entire XR community of startups, studios, individuals, passionate people, and really to build a new community that brings together everybody who's passionate about this technology for a low cost and allow them to contribute to learn and to get better across the whole industry. That is really the reason why we started XR Ignite, to hyper accelerate the XR for business industry, business and education. And one of the things that we just keep noticing is that there's so many resources out there. There's the VRAR Association, which we're partners with. There are you know reports coming out daily, but there's no one source where people can come together and start just having conversations around how to get better in this industry. And that's why we started XR Ignite. I would encourage anybody who's listening to this podcast, if you're in the corporate side, if you're a startup, if you're an individual, if you're an enthusiast, sign up today at xrignite.com and you'll be getting access to new reports, investor lists, media lists, exclusive content, interviews with our mentors. We have over 56 mentors. And if you're a startup and you pay an annual fee, you'll actually have the opportunity to book a one-on-one, -one, one-hour call with one of the mentors. What we're doing with that is we're actually recording those sessions, we're transcribing them, taking out any personal information, 
and we're making those transcripts available to all members. So I think XR Ignite is going to drive a lot of value for anybody in this industry who's looking to up their game and also for corporates who want a real insight as to what technology is coming out. So I would encourage everybody to sign up at XRIgnite.com and I really look forward to driving value, executing on our mission to hyper-accelerate XR for business and education.